Hello, I'm Becky Hadid, host of The Storied Recipe. As my weekly guests share their stories through the vessel of cherished food memories, we all become better cooks, more grateful for the gift of food, and we honor those that have loved us through their cooking. When Shauna turned 30, a relative challenged her to start writing again. After setting aside her initial excuses, which were quite reasonable, she had two young children and was working full-time. She and her husband carved out just one hour every other day for her to write. Six years later, I was walking out of my favorite library when my eye fell on a book in the new releases section titled The Children of Gods and Fighting Men by Shauna Lawless. When I finished reading her novel, quickly and quite late at night, I was so hungry, not only for Shauna's second book, but also to learn more about these three great conflicts that she effortlessly weaves together through compelling characters and a really strong, fast-paced storyline set in 1000 AD. The first conflict is between the mythological Tyr Dedanon and the Fomorians, also mythological. The second conflict is between the real-life, historical Nordic warriors and kings and queens of Ireland that battled for kingdoms. And the third conflict between the pagan and Christian belief systems that battled for both hearts, yes, but also for power in Ireland uh, a thousand years ago. I am so thrilled and so honored that Shauna came on to talk about all of this and so much more with us, including uh, this very simple, traditional, authentic, old-fashioned four-ingredient stew, potato, beef, carrot, onion, Irish stew that Shauna's father made for her and now she and her husband make for their three boys. This is the stew you want when you come back from hours of walking in the Mourn Mountains of Northern Ireland, where Shauna lives. It is the stew you crave when you stand on an ancient cliff and look out over the same angry sea from which the kings and queens of Ireland saw Nordic ships approaching a thousand years ago. I am so excited for all that you're going to learn from Shauna over the next 90 minutes. So I'm going to stop talking right now. Just as soon as I say one more huge thank you to Shauna for coming on the podcast and an equally even greater massive thank you to you for being here. Hi, Becky. How are you? Well, I'm just so thrilled to be talking to you because I loved your book so much. Um, I was just walking out of the library one day and it kind of caught my eye and I thought, oh, that, that looks good. I think it was on the new release shelf. And um, yeah, I mean, I'm very busy. I have four boys and I read it maybe in like three or four days, stayed up really late to finish it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's amazing. Thank you so much. (laughs) Oh, you're so welcome. You're so welcome. So, so actually we were in Ireland. Uh, My husband and I were in Ireland exactly five years ago this day. And uh, yes, it was, it was amazing. I loved being in Ireland and I asked him over the weekend, getting ready to speak with you. I I just wanted to know if he remembered it the way that I did, because it did feel very magical, very mystical. It felt very ancient. And your book captured that so well. Um, So to talk to you in real life, (laughs) I'm 
like, this is a real, a real actual person. And I wanted to kind of like ground this conversation in that. In, instead of like all these ancient connotations that I have with Ireland and with your work. So let's let's talk a little bit just about you and we'll start okay. right off the bat with this with the stew recipe that you gave me. So tell yeah. me about that. Okay, so an Irish stew is sort of a staple dinner in in Ireland. Mm-hmm. Um and so it's like a very comforting, very mm-hmm. warm meal and Ireland is often quite cold and wet mm-hmm. so it's sort of the perfect dinner to have if you've been out and you come in and it just smells wonderful and mm-hmm. you kind of cook it for quite a long time so um like the flavors can be really nice and you know mm-hmm. you kind of want it to be nice and thick mm-hmm. it's like a thick melded stew. melded yeah. yeah is you said if you've been out and you come in is being outdoors a um a common like is that still part of modern life in Ireland that most people spend time outdoors they walk places things like that um well yes I would say so certainly for me um mm. so where whereabouts do you live um at the minute I live um north in a, D- a suburb of Washington DC right so I lived in Canada for a year um, oh, mm-hmm. and me and my husband so we we lived in Canada and so for me when I was in Canada like nobody walked anywhere yes <laughs> yeah no, it's not normal around here no. you go out and walk your dog or you intentionally walk but it's not your mode of transportation yeah yeah so Ireland would be a bit more like that I mean it's both um, obviously because some people um, live in very rural places and then mm-hmm. you have to drive to get to the shop but mm. because I live in a small town, mm. you know, I would walk to go to the shop or the post office or I would walk to maybe pick my kids up from school. Um, yes. So there's a lot of walking. But then more than that, I live close to a mountain range. Oh, and it's called the Mourn Mountains. Mm. And when I uh, was younger, uh, my father, um, he is very avid mountain walker mm. and he would have me up the mountains all the time. So, um, yeah, so walking for me is not just like casual walking to kind of do your messages, but actually going for for mountain hikes and into the parks and into the forests was also a big thing for me growing up. Wow. Wow. So I'm looking, do you still live near the Mourne Mountains? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so are they in Northern Ireland? Yes. Mm -hmm. Ah, okay. 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 I see. Yeah. When we went, we did the whole circumference um, of Ireland Mm -hmm. in a week, in seven days. Yes. (laughs) Yes. And one day we just, all of a sudden, like the signs, um, the road signs look different and stuff. And I looked up at a map. I was like, oh, we're, we're in North Ireland, Northern Ireland. I didn't know that (laughs) it was so easy. Now there's no, um, there's no checkpoints or anything like that between. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But it was drive over. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It was really beautiful there. And even more um, when we planned our trip, I used this uh, hashtag on, on Instagram to, to plan it. And the hashtag was wild Ireland. Like that's what I wanted to see what was felt very wild and earthy and everything. And uh, tell me if I'm wrong, but to me, it felt even more wild in Northern Ireland. It felt more remote. And there's certainly places like, I suppose if you're driving up North, um, Mm -hmm. you know, there's lots of like the lakes um, and Fermanagh, it can feel very remote. Mm -hmm. And then along the North coast as well. Um, Mm -hmm. Definitely. Uh, I suppose because you, you go up to the North Coast, you're getting further and further away from Belfast and from mm-hmm. Dublin. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, like we we go caravanning quite a lot. Mm. Uh, we have a touring caravan, which we go away in in the summer. Oh, and wow. We, we go to the North Coast a lot. And it's, yeah, it's beautiful up there and it still fades, you know. Gosh, you know, I could be looking at this exact same view if I had been here a thousand years ago. Yes. There's lots of places where there are no buildings and like nothing very modern mm. you know you, you can still find a lot of places that are like that and that's lovely to kind of get away from modern life and sort of feel a bit more connected with yeah. the land as it has always been yes yeah it's easy to do there at the land and the sea also right yes yes and I think it helps as well <laughs> like there's no real dangerous animals in Ireland um you can you can go off the beaten track and not be afraid because I know when we were in Canada Mm -hmm. like I said we should go for a walk and then it was like well there's bears and there's (laughs) like rattlesnakes and there's mountain lions and right yeah so it's not just so easy like you know I wouldn't have maybe felt comfortable going for a walk by myself but in but in Ireland I would you know right right and actually is it true is it true there's no snakes in Ireland no snakes, no. Thank you, St. Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that yeah, what's the what's the story there with St. Patrick? It is related, right? Well, that that's the sort of um so it's like a folklore story. Uh-huh. I don't know. Um, but yes, the, the, there are no snakes in Ireland, but there are in England. Mm-hmm. Um, so I suppose it was like it's a story that's that's come up that St. Patrick cast all the snakes out of Ireland by way of explaining why we don't have any but the countries beside us do (laughs) isn't that amazing that they've never yeah I mean it almost feels like there had to be something magical or spiritual the fact that they've never made it over when I was in high school here we had um we had somehow some Chinese snake was introduced like a snake gosh, like a snake lizard thing. I don't know what it was, but it was somehow introduced um, to a lake near near where I live. And sure enough, that thing, it like destroyed all kinds of wildlife. And But it just shows how easy it is to, for things yeah. to travel from one country to another. And yet never, never, they, they've never made it to Ireland. No, no, they, they haven't. Um, unless like maybe pet snakes are <laughs> being released, but, you know, but I've never seen, never seen a snake. And I've, I've walked lots of places and so they're they're not really here so Amazing. um that kind of makes walking around Ireland quite safe you know you're not going to be yeah um attacked by wildlife shall we say right right yeah. right and only the sheep <laughs> only the sheep yeah or an angry bull or something like that but, um, <laughs> an angry yeah. bull oh yeah, yeah we didn't know that um again when I went we that's what I really wanted to do was just walk and explore and we would go on hikes I mean, for hours, mm-hmm. hours and not see a single person. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm also thinking about how good it would be to have this stew because I've almost never experienced wind like we felt it in yes. Ireland. Yes. The wind in Ireland can be quite intense. And that's mm. another thing I would say about because when I was in Canada, obviously mm. Canada gets really, really cold. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, know, you get like minus 20s, minus 30s in Ireland mm. doesn't get cold like that. Mm. you know the coldest it would be would you know if it's a really cold snap it would be like minus five or minus six but right Ireland you can get really cold with the wind and with the damp yes and, and so when I was in Canada and people were saying oh it's like minus 20 I mm. would go out and be oh but 
I think I felt colder in Ireland when it's mm-hmm. been a lot warmer because mm-hmm. the wet's cold and the wind's cold. Like mm-hmm. it can be a lot, like it can make you feel so much colder than the, the actual temperature is. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can get wind burn as well yes. when you're walking in Ireland. Like it, like your yes. face will literally be red afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not sunburn, <laughs> it's wind burn. <laughs> My face tends towards being red anyways, which I do blame on my Irish German heritage. Yeah. <laughs> and the wind doesn't the wind doesn't help with that, does it? <laughs> no, no, definitely not. So, oh. Yeah, so Ireland, yeah, it's it's wonderful and it is quite rugged. And yeah, I, I love, I love like I could do what you did. Like I, I would love to go and walk for hours and sort of get lost in the, the wilderness. It was amazing. It was amazing. But you were, you are right. When you came back, you wanted something so warm and cozy yeah. and unfussy. Yes, exactly. Which the stew is. Mm-hmm. So tell me about um, the, you mentioned your father. Who else did you live with growing up and who made this stew? So I lived with my mother and father growing up. Um, I do have an older brother and sister, but they're, um, quite a bit older than me mm-hmm. so um like they would have moved like when I was very very young mm-hmm. so my memories really are uh, me and my mommy and my daddy and Aww. my dad is Irish and mm-hmm. my mum is half Irish half English mm. so her mother was Irish and mm-hmm. she had lived for the first 16 years of her life in England and then moved over to Ireland mm. so um the Irish stew was always something my dad made Mm-hmm. because um it was sort of his his thing mm-hmm. uh and so he would make it uh with beef and um, mm-hmm. sometimes he would put like sausage in it as well which is like oh. kind of heresy but, oh really um, yeah <laughs> sausage sausage meat in the stew but he would just do it sometimes I think just mm-hmm. to kind of add flavor or to bulk it up a bit Mm-hmm. um but no it's this you, you didn't really do that but um but it's just it was and then it was me and my dad mostly he went out walking in the mountains Mm. so again it would just be you'd be off the mountains and then you know he'd put the stew on and it would just be like a really lovely dinner mm. I can imagine yeah. it this um this wet wet wild mountain walks and coming back to that warm steamy simple yeah. stew mm. yeah it'd be lovely amazing how about you you have three sons do I understand that yes I have three yes oh wonderful wonderful yeah how old are they um 12 mm. 9 and 7 Perfect. And you yeah. make it for them. I make it sometimes, although I have to say it's something my husband makes really well. Oh, <laughs> so, all the better. Um, yeah. So sometimes I'm like, you know, it's like an easy, well, not an easy thing for him to make, but it's something he enjoys to make. So mm. sometimes if we're having a sheet, I'll offload the the making of it to Jared. Because um, <laughs> he makes he makes it very nice. He he spends a long time preparing it and he'll mm. he'll start cooking it at lunchtime. Yes. Uh, have it ready for dinner. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, so what are Jared's, you know, you gave me a couple of recipes and one at it's most simple. It's just beef, carrots, onions, potatoes. That's it. Yeah. Right. And the broth kind of forms itself. And, um, but then of course there's almost anything you can do from there. So, um, what, what are Jared's kind of secret ingredients or what are your favorite, um, ways to, I guess, fancy it up a little bit. Okay, so 
what uh, my husband makes, he would add like a beef stock to it mm. just to mm-hmm. kind of give the gravy um, a, a bit more of a, of a kick. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes, which again is sort of heresy, but people do things like this, is he would add Chinese spice spice to it. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Just to give it a t- like not loads, but just to okay. give it a wee bit of a kick. Okay. Um, uh, but again, like that wouldn't be something many people would do. If, right. I, was, <laughs> if I was cooking it, I would add parsnip. No, okay. Um, I like parsnip Um, and some people would um, so I've heard people add bacon to it oh fair enough Mm -hmm. yep Um, but no but the the way the the kind of the plain way I gave to you is really what an Irish stew is Um, that's as yeah yeah. as as, okay and what about um, when you do the parsnips do you replace the carrots with the parsnips or just add them oh no add them add them okay yeah Okay. Parsnips okay. kind of give it a bit more of a, it's like a sweeter flavor. Yeah. I think a little yeah. more peppery too. Don't you think? Yes. Parsnips. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I kind of, I think it adds a bit more flavor, mm-hmm. um, but then uh, you probably, you'll know yourself. You've got four boys sometimes yeah. <laughs> when you're trying to feed everyone. Yeah. Keeping it simple <laughs> is just easier. Um, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's for sure the appeal of this. And so you don't want to go too much, too much yeah. further than that. Um, I do love, I do love a fresh herb myself. So I'd probably pop a few of those in, but, um, I like to hear that it is as simple as you say, but everyone does have a little bit of their own version. It sounds like. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, certainly because everyone, you know, you have slightly different tastes and it's sort of Mm -hmm. the Irish Jew has obviously come about because it was, it was made by people who, who were using what they had. Mm -hmm. So, um, like Islam and beef would be the primary suppose cattle that we've always had in Ireland so oh, it makes okay. sense that it would be beef or lamb would be the two mm-hmm. meats that you would use right and then in terms of vegetables that we have here that are grown in Ireland obviously potatoes is a big one and then carrots and parsnips and things like that would also be easily accessible mm-hmm. um so it is meant to be a, like it's a, it's a stew that for hundreds of years anybody and everybody would have eaten Mm. and that's maybe the appeal of it it's not mm-hmm. it's not meant to be fancy food I know sometimes right I've seen uh you know like chefs would do like a fancy version of mm-hmm. an Irish stew and sometimes I look at it and just be but it's sort of stopped being an Irish stew now <laughs> right just, especially when sometimes I've seen chefs put the potatoes on top of the stew yeah you mentioned that like yeah. arrange them in kind of a concentric circle pattern and like a yeah way. yeah and I was like that's not a stew a stew is a potato. Right is in the mix and kind of they're meant to be absorbing the stock right. and the, the meat and the gravy right that's yeah. the key is that all yes. that flavor gets deep 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 in the potatoes and you said yes. you cook them till they just completely fall apart yes yes yeah. it's meant to be soft it's not meant to be like a hard stew right. it's, it's like comforting it's you know mm-hmm. like I whenever like I would have been cooking it and we had our children and they're very young you know you're meant to mm-hmm. really be able to give it to like a very young toddler I, I was just thinking that I was thinking, yeah, you could feed it to a baby. Yeah, you, you could. It, it's not mm-hmm. meant to be like a difficult meal to eat. Mm-hmm. It's meant to be for the whole family, for everybody. And um, even the beef cooks yeah. down to be that tender. Yeah, so, so tender. So it's mm-hmm. literally falling apart. Like you you do not need a fork and a knife to eat an Irish stew. It's mm-hmm. with a spoon and the meat would, would pull away if you put your spoon into it. Mm-hmm. I yeah. see. I see. And I love what you said also about, you know, it is the same as standing on that cliff and looking out 
and feeling like thousands of years ago, people saw the same site to eat the stew. You feel that connected to your heritage. Yeah, although I suppose potatoes, they only arrived in Ireland, I think, in the 14th century. Okay, um, so seven, what, it, seven, eight hundred years, good enough. Yeah, that's, that's good enough, yeah. <laughs> I really overplayed my hand with thousands. Yeah, <laughs> it's okay, it's fine. <laughs> not many uh, people know that. <laughs> well, I did actually oh, want did, to yeah. talk about potatoes. No, I did not know, I did not know, but I did want to talk about potatoes. So I'm happy oh, yeah. that it took this turn because, and I think because of an American perspective, um, it all comes back to the potato famine and people left yes. Ireland and came to the US. And so our view of Ireland is very, you know, we think a couple things. We think Boston, <laughs> um, we think potatoes, we think the the potato famine, um, we think St. Patrick's Day, we think heavy drinking, like there's a couple of stereotypes there, you know? Oh, yeah. And I wonder, um, I wonder how much potatoes are an actual truly uh true staple of irish cooking and how much that's part of like our um our perception our stereotype that goes back to one small period in history that was of course hugely significant um for irish people yeah well um so the, i suppose like this is kind of like a long story yeah <laughs> like, take your time you, okay so i suppose um ireland was conquered um by the English in 1169 that early so it, yes yeah, yes that that's when Strongbow landed in Ireland now it, the the I suppose the conquering of Ireland it didn't happen overnight it took kind of hundreds of years and it was really maybe more in the Tudor times ah that, okay. um, Ireland kind of was they they tried to conquer it more because they saw Ireland really as being a country that was more helpful to the French and the Spanish and a possible invasion route into England, ah. which they didn't like. So that was when kind of the, the kind of conquering of Ireland began in earnest. Oh, so it was like a defensive conquering. We're taking yes. you over. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Mm -hmm. that, well, that would have been, I suppose, the, the military perspective. You know, you, you don't you want to see the ships coming in from the south you don't want them kind of sailing around Ireland mm -hmm. and invading you from somewhere you, you're not expecting mm. so um so obviously there's like a lot of wars and it's a very kind of tempestuous history mm. but at this time um obviously the English are coming over and they're being given land in Ireland mm -hmm. and the Irish people who used to own the lands are kind of I suppose they're giving holdings mm. And they are having to grow their own food and their own crops, I suppose, as they had always done. And then they're having to sort of pay now the landlords or the mm -hmm. English ar aristoc aristoc yeah, aristocracy, yeah, aristocracy, <laughs> yeah, um, kind of a portion of the food or like a, a rent or, or whatever it is. And so as that is happening, I suppose the people in Ireland are becoming poorer Mm. um and then kind of because the land is now as time progresses land becomes exclusively owned really by the English mm. and it's at this time like I think the potatoes start to come in maybe like the 14th 15th century mm. and it it is used a lot because it's a crop that grows really well mm -hmm. and so the Irish population by the time we're getting to the, the time of the Irish famine is mm -hmm. huge I think it's mm. it's bigger even maybe than the population of Ireland is now. Really? 
And so the fact that the potato became this crop that was very easily grown Mm -hmm. uh, and you could grow lots of it in a small area of land Mm -hmm. meant that the Irish people eventually became quite reliant on the potato Mm -hmm. um, to feed themselves. And then, you know, the other things that they had, the other crops that they grew was almost like what they gave to the the landlords as their Mm -hmm. rent payments. So I I heard... um... Like I said, we mostly just walked, but there we went to one castle. I think it was Kilkenny Castle, maybe. Okay. Um, when we were there and did a tour, and because I, if I'm going to go somewhere historical, I like to do a tour from people who really can tell yes, me no, what it all stuff. means. And someone there said, "Tell me if you can confirm this or not." That actually, the um, this is to your point about how reliant the Irish themselves were on potatoes while producing so many other crops that um, there was actually normal to even higher production of food um, in Ireland than ever during the potato famine. It's just that all of the good food was sent to England. That's correct. Yeah. Isn't so, that yeah. wild? Yeah. Wow. It, 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 it is wild because no one really needed to have died at all. Like there was enough food. It, it was just the potato blight. So it was just that one crop was affected and had a bad yield. But because all the other food was had to be paid as rents, um, wow. the Irish people didn't have any food left to feed themselves. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That is, that is just, wow. So, mm, do the Irish still eat potatoes as yes. much? Yes. We do. Yes. I mean, there are lots of different ways you can eat potatoes here. Um, we're not quite as bad as like a Samwise Gamgee. <laughs> we're, we're like obsessed <laughs> with potatoes, but I mean. I do. love potatoes. I would yeah. no shame if someone is. <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, like we, like we have obviously like, um, like different varieties. We'd have like champ, which would be mashed potatoes with scallions chopped into it which would be very Mm. popular here Mm. lots of people would like fry up potatoes with scallions and bacon and cabbage Mm. uh we have potato bread so that is like right like a very flat bread but with potato in it um so no potatoes are are, they are very very popular like it's still a crop that is grown very widely Mm -hmm. in ireland and I think because it's like it's been grown here for hundreds and hundreds of years, mm-hmm. um, it is a part of our cuisine now. Mm-hmm. So even though, like, I suppose I've kind of given you a bit of a history about why we have potatoes and obviously kind of a very tragic story that that, that happened, which was very. the Irish famine. Yeah. But in saying that, you know, even after the Irish famine, potatoes uh, were still grown and people that had survived the famine um, would still eat them which is why you know we still eat them now because it's it's kind of mm-hmm. it's the cuisine that we have grown up with and our grandparents grew up with and mm-hmm. their grandparents grew up with if you know what I mean of course of yeah course. yeah wonderful well thank you for that <laughs> for the recipe for sure and also for the the little um the little history lesson so I'd love to talk um I'd love to talk well I guess we'll 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 keep I was thinking of switching up the order, but we'll stay maybe with the order that I had the questions in and stick yeah. with you as a real person before we go too much into the more history and the mythology and how those interacted together in your book. But I I read um, you know, a few interviews that what I could find um 
with you. And I'm not sure where I saw this one, but maybe it's even in your about section. But you said at some point, it was it was almost like, I'm sure this is overly simplistic the way I'm about to say it, but it was almost like you said, well, I'm going to write a book. And then I taught myself how to write a book. I, I was just kind of amazed by that. It just sounded like you just made a determination and then you went, you went right after it. But there must be, there must be that you had always had a talent for writing. You had always loved to write. There must be something about that. So tell me about this process of teaching yourself to become a writer, getting yourself in the position that you could write this amazing novel. Of course, that's the first of three. I'm already excited for the second. So tell me about that. Um, well, I had always uh, enjoyed to write stories when I was younger. So uh, I was I would describe myself as being a prolific reader, mm-hmm. first and foremost, but I did enjoy writing my own stories. Mm. Um, and I kind of wrote stories when I was a child up through to my teenage years. And then I had a big break. Oh, really from writing. Um, I think, you know, you're at university, you're studying. I traveled, um, got married, had kids, mm-hmm. you know, they're always moved to Canada. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Lived in Canada for a year. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there was a lot going on. And so whenever, but I, I had written a novel when I was about 19. Really? Yes. But it was, it was a children's, like a middle grade novel. Oh. Um, and so I, I wrote it and I gave it to a few people to read. And one of the people to read it was my husband's uncle mm-hmm. and he loved it. And so every so often he would be, oh, you know, where's another story? You know, I really enjoyed yeah. that last one. Um, give me something else. And the answer was always no. <laughs> like I don't, I don't have time anymore. Yeah. And, um, and, and that would be that. But on my 30th birthday party, uh-huh. we were speaking and he said, you know, where is the second book? Uh, I really want to read something else. Wow. And I kind of gave him, you know, the I'm too busy and I'm working and I've yeah. got kids. And yeah. he just went, oh, well, you know, if you really like something, you should really try to, to find some time. Wow. And initially that annoyed me <laughs> a little mm. bit because, you know, when you're, you know, you've got four boys. Yes. I, yeah. Like when I, you're busy, you think, how dare you? You can't even yeah. understand what I'm going through. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I was a little bit taken aback. And, mm-hmm. but the more that sat with me, the more uh, it kind of, kind of digged into my brain a little bit. And because wow. I did want to write, I did, you know, it was something I wanted to do. And, yeah. I just in myself felt like I didn't have any time. Mm. And so the next day I said to my husband, you know, uh, you know, your uncle said that to me. And but I've been thinking, you know, I, I, I should make time because he's right. I do really love it. And wow, um, you know, what what can we do? And my husband says, well, like every why don't we take turns doing that bedtime routine? Wow. We'll just do every other night. And then that means, um, you know, every other night you will have an hour to to write wow so I, you know I'll go up I'll do the bath and the bedtime story and you know and then the, you're not missing out you're doing it the next night we'll just take turns wow. and that'll be good for you because you'll have more time to do this yeah and I was like right okay um I because whenever I had written my story when I was 19 mm-hmm. I mean I had days upon days mm-hmm. on it mm-hmm. to write because mm-hmm. you know your your weekends are free or your your whole evenings are free right yeah and in my head I think that's what I thought I needed yeah 
and but I, obviously that cannot happen anymore I'm working four or five days a week and I've got two young children but I thought well okay so this is this is a compromise and I'll write for an hour every other evening and I'll just see how I get on and I know that in four months there was 80,000 words in my word document <laughs> and I just think yeah it was like it just came pouring out all these words and stories and ideas and um Shauna when you were like walking around a normal life were you imagining this story or did you and and then you just had to put it on the page or did you you really just started day one and all of a sudden it just rushed into your head or was it related to what you wrote when you were 19? No it was completely different and no I hadn't thought of it before it just sort of all came to my head sort of thing. Wow yeah so that's I know and that's advice I sometimes give to writers Mm. Um, and a lot of people on Twitter can say things like I don't have time and Mm. and I think sometimes that mistake is it's a mistake I made is that you kind of imagine yourself being a writer Mm -hmm. and you have these days and hours upon end where you can kind of like stir into the distance and imagine a story (laughs) and it's kind of very romantic in a way and Mm -hmm that's not really modern life anymore. Like I don't know anyone that just kind of straight mm-hmm. out of university is a writer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so you need to try, well, I, I would advise people, you need to try and learn um, how to utilize time. You know, even if it's only half an hour, mm-hmm. if you have half an hour every day, like, believe me, the word count will, will grow. It mm-hmm. will, um, it will come together. And that's what I find like when I had these hours because I was so focused then mm-hmm. on having this hour mm-hmm. then I suppose I began to imagine kind of the stories I was writing and when I had that hour like I could just write thousands of words um, mm. it just literally come come straight out um I, I, I type so fast and I feel like this story that you are sharing right now needs to be shared with every mother of young kids with a dream in the world this is amazing to me. Would you go so far as to say that it was an advantage that you had so little time? Do you know, sometimes because now I write full time mm-hmm. um, and let me tell you, I don't get like, it's not like I'm getting five times the word count. Right. <laughs> I have five times the time. Um, and because writing for me is like a lot of that is thinking time. A lot of that is working through how a plot would work, what a character would say. And so whenever I was commuting to work, mm. which was like a three hour round trip, I found myself in those hours when, you know, you're, you're, it's kind of like dead time mm-hmm. and like you're driving, but you can't do anything else. I find myself thinking a lot. Mm-hmm. And so um, I find then that when I had my hour, all the other work that you have to do to write was already done. Mm. and so I would write whereas now I have days to write but I still have to spend time thinking Mm -hmm. and um kind of working through how something will happen on the page Mm -hmm. and so you know you still need to do that Mm -hmm. yeah Uh, do you do that out walking now instead of driving or do you try to do it at the computer you do it out walking walking I get all my best ideas when I'm walking amazing I'm almost speechless at what happened here. And there's a couple of things that I just do want to like commend you and your husband for. And one is just, I feel like, um, especially in that stage when kids are really young, 
it's it's very i think most of us as mothers have a tendency to really take on like a martyr um mentality because it is very difficult and to just say it's impossible it's impossible it's impossible it's impossible and you in under 24 hours overcame that tendency and i i think the question that you asked your husband is just so profound which was just what can we do here um, because I know for myself, I have expressed frustration to my husband at times before and then said, there's nothing to be done and been so stuck in that, um, in that declaration, there's nothing to be done, um, that I wouldn't even be open to the idea that four hours a week could do something. And I just think it's remarkable, um, that you guys were problem solved together, that he made that offer and that you took it. You just said, yeah, you didn't try to fight it. And, um, and you were more concerned about actually getting something done than about being a martyr in the moment. And I think that's actually quite unusual. Do you know, mothers can just be so tough on themselves. Mm. I, I just really feel that, um, you know, and I, I can't, I can't be tough on myself too. You know, you want to be the perfect mother and you've got these wonderful babies and you want the best mm. for them. And, you know, you want to do everything, but I think, I don't know. I mean, I look back at kind of maybe my mother's generation and grandmother's generation. And when you were a mother, then that's what you were, like you weren't expected to, mm -hmm. to work as well. And obviously society has shifted for the better because I think um if you go back to to those years women didn't have any choice mm -hmm. as to what they wanted to do and choices right. obviously you know it's key it, it, it's important it has to happen right. but also what has happened with modern life is then that now if you're a mother but you can't really live on a one person mm -hmm. salary anymore or else it's very tough um, and so a lot of women are raising families and they're working mm -hmm. and now as, as well, like if I go back to my, my mom and my grandma's generation, like they didn't take their kids to like all these after school activities. Right. And, mm -hmm. um, well, my mom did, but like my granny would not have, would, mm -hmm. wouldn't have done that for my, my father. Mm -hmm. And so being a mother now, it's not even just like feeding your children and bathing. Right. Them. It's not them. that work it, is added on top, but mother, yeah. like what's, what's, what's considered, um, being a good mother has changed yes. so dramatically as well to, yeah. Also. Yeah. 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 Right. So, so now it is like so much work. And I think when you're a new mother, it can take a long time to work through what's important to yourself and learn to discard things that maybe society thinks is important but maybe yeah. in your own case isn't very relevant oh. so um I do so I think you have to work through that and I think you have to also recognize that whenever you're you know you're living your life it is also okay to kind of carve out bits of time for yourself and you know an hour or half an hour in the evening is not a big ask you know, uh, no, uh, no, mm -hmm. it's not. But I also give you credit there because I think that you were willing to say if four hours is what I can get for out, I'm going to believe that I can do something in four hours. And I honestly think that 99% of us would say almost scoff. Like, I think we would have almost scoffed at our husbands and said, oh, you don't understand four hours is nothing. Um, yeah. Or you get this or somebody else gets that or and and whatever. And you just absolutely refused to 
um, feel sorry for yourself to be a martyr or even to hold yourself back. You, you were so open to possibility along this route, which is completely inspiring to me. <laughs> I mean, really amazing. Yeah, um, well, definitely. I mean, you know, you have to some, well, as I said before, um, mm. you know, that, that first 24 hours when, when my husband's uncle said that to me, I was mm. in that mode. Like, mm-hmm. oh, no, there isn't time. And, you know, what, you know, mm-hmm. how dare he say that to me? Yeah, mm-hmm. I've got two children and a, and a job and all this other stuff. It's, you know, and you're kind of making me feel bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but I think when you really, really love something and you really want to do something, mm-hmm. it's always there and it's sort of poking you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I just feel this time he said it to me and it just it got to me enough yeah. that I was like, well, do you know what? See, see these four R's. I'll give it a go. And I didn't really know what to expect. Um, mm. To be honest, I thought, sure, in two weeks, I could have given mm. this up or I'll be too frustrated. But but I think that love that I had that was there, mm. just it kind of, as I said, it poured out and it just didn't let me ever stop. Amazing. Amazing. Well, good for him for saying it. Good for your husband yeah. <laughs> for working with you and good for you for saying, this is what I have. This is what I'm going to take. And um, just an amazing, amazing combination of contentment with four hours is what I have. Four minutes is what, yeah. four hours is what I'm going to take, but also um, 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 like a striving as well and and trying to do something with that. So, I mean, I really commend you on that. That's quite amazing. And I think, like I said, inspiring probably for a lot of people who will be listening to this. Mm. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so you finished, um, you said you had 80,000 pages in four months. Um, 80,000 words. It's, in- yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. <laughs> All the encyclopedias in the world don't quite get us no. to 80,000 pages. Yeah. No, um, you had 80,000 words in four months, but you did. So how much work did it take from there? What happened from there? Okay, so first of all, I just wrote for a way for fun. Um, mm-hmm. And then a story started to emerge. And it took me about two years to finish the story. Mm. And it was pretty rubbish. Mm. Um, and so that's probably where you kind of read the thing about learning to write. Because mm. even though I had read lots of books, mm. you know, like thousands of books that mm-hmm. I read all mm-hmm. the time, I, I, I well for me anyway I didn't instantly kind of come out with this mm-hmm. kind of nice prose it was horrible actually at the start um and I realized that when I was reading you know and I wasn't sure where I was going wrong so I joined an online critique so for those two years as you were writing were you thinking oh I know this isn't any good or did you think oh this is great and then at the end you read it back and were like oh maybe it's not as good as I thought um, I didn't really care, to be honest. I, wow. I, I, at the first two years, I was just happy uh, writing. Wow. And I just wanted to get the story out. I didn't really judge myself um, or get frustrated. It was just a hobby at this stage and it was fun. And that hour every other night I looked mm. forward to. And so, uh, but, but obviously once I got to the end of the two years and th- there was a story mm. and I started to read it back and then I was like, oh, yes, this is not like, me that I've just pulled a novel off the shelf but you know the quality <laughs> is quite significantly below that and um I maybe need to think now about how do I improve this mm. to, a, to a reasonable quality mm. um and so I kind of didn't really know what to do but mm-hmm. um I kind of researched online and there was 
it's a it's an online platform called Critique Circle. Mm-hmm. Although there are lots of different variants of this, mm-hmm. where essentially you can put a chapter up and people will read your chapter, but in exchange you have to read their chapters. Wow. Yeah. So it's not like you can't you can't just put loads of work up and expect people to read that you actually mm-hmm. have to um kind of work for other people as yeah, well. Yeah, it's a commitment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say you learn an awful lot from reading other people's work as well. Mm. Um, because whenever you pull a book off the shelf and it's mm-hmm. all lovely and you're reading it and it flows really smoothly, mm-hmm. sometimes it can be hard to work out why it does that. Mm-hmm. But whenever mm-hmm. you go into a critique circle platform, you know, some people's mm-hmm. work there is very good. Some people's work there is okay. Mm-hmm. And some people's work isn't good. And so sometimes when you're reading the okay, not so good stuff, you're like, oh, you know, hmm. they do that and I do that. And hmm. when I'm reading when I'm reading their work, I don't like it. And hmm. so now I understand why my book isn't working. And then suddenly when so you go back to the good stuff, then you're like, oh, so that's what they did. And you know, yes. that's why that's why I'm moving through that story more quickly or yeah. do you know yeah. what I mean? It's, I know it's very, exactly very what you mean. I know exactly what you mean. Just as a photographer, uh, you know, people will ask like, how do you learn? And I, the best way is to look at somebody else's work. It's yeah. to look at somebody else's work and say, what worked here? What's good about this that I can't do. Okay. Now let me go try to do that. Or yeah. why is this not working? And exactly like you said, Oh, I do that too. Uh, let me stop doing that. Um, yeah. Hmm. yeah. Yeah, so I was on that website for two years, mm. um, kind of working through my novel, kind of putting a chapter up a week mm-hmm. and <clears throat> trying to rewrite as I went and improve few, like the newer chapters and kind of yeah. hoping to get less bad. So feedback. now we're four years in, you spent yeah. two years writing for the fun of it. And again, I just want to commend you because you got to the end and instead of being discouraged, instead of saying it's wasted, instead of any of that, you said, oh, what's the next step? Then you spent two more years learning and perfecting your craft. So now we're four years in. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. Amazing. So, Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Um, and I think for writing, it's sort of like the anti-modern <laughs> hobby because mm. it's still slow mm. and you can't you can't just wave a wand and magically yep improve you have to work to improve mm. and it takes a long time mm-hmm. word um, for word sentence for sentence paragraph yeah. by paragraph you just got to keep working at it amazing yeah mm. exactly and again at this time it's still a hobby and mm-hmm. so again sometimes when I'm on Twitter or people are asking advice about writing sometimes I'm like everyone's in a rush mm. and just kind of calm down a wee bit and mm. kind of take a bit of stock of what you're doing. It doesn't have to be so rushed. All these deadlines oh. and targets you're setting yourself, you have set yourself mm. and you can change them. You don't need to kind of get bogged down with all this. Mm. And so for me at this time, like for, it was just a hobby and I was in the rush. Mm-hmm. Mm. I almost feel light and unburdened hearing you say this, just take your time. There's no rush do it and do it well. Yeah. It's amazing. amazing. Yeah. So that was, that, that was my sort of philosophy and it hadn't even maybe overly dawned on me at this stage mm-hmm. um, to kind of send it off. Although once, once I had got to that end of the four years, mm-hmm. I did think about um, sending it off to agents and I had a go at doing that and pulling a submission together and that's very time consuming. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I probably took a few months out there 
um, having a go at doing that. And I just, it got rejected, this novel. So really the one that yeah. I read. No, 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 no. This, oh. is, a, this is a previous novel. Oh, okay. So, yeah. No, no one has read this one. Oh. Um, um, but so once I had got to the end of that novel, I kind of thought to myself, well, why? Like, it definitely was uh, written well enough, mm-hmm. I thought, to be mm-hmm. published. Mm-hmm. But I was like, so, so why is no one interested in it? And there was lots of reasons. I think it was too long. Mm-hmm. I think it was very complicated. And there was like lots of different timelines, lots of different narratives, lots of POV mm. characters, and it was maybe just too much. Hmm. So then I thought, well, do you know, I've learned so much. Mm-hmm. I've had such a great time. Um, when I write my next novel, instead of kind of just like rushing into it and like letting whatever come out, maybe I should just, before I start, have a think about how long I want it to be. Hmm. Um, uh, not so much about the the plot but just just a bit more planning as mm-hmm. to as to what I want and then that mm-hmm. is the book that you've read so my second novel I wrote wow. is the children of gods and fighting men wow and how long did that take you so that took me I think just over a year to write wow amazing yeah. amazing at any point in that five years did you think about giving up or did you love it so much it carried you through no, because at this stage, I was really honestly writing for myself. Um, even the Children of Gods and Fighting Men, which I, I kind of put a bit more thought into, mm-hmm. if I had actually really known the industry mm-hmm. um, and kind of thought properly about, like, I definitely want to be published, I don't mm-hmm. think I would have written the story I wrote because... Um, really? No, because it's like cross-genre. It so is. Think, mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think if I'd been more sensible, I would have just written a straightforward historical fiction novel mm. um, or maybe kind of had my book inspired by Ireland, but not actually be mm. Ireland. Hmm. Um, but I, I still didn't really know the industry very well. Uh, mm. And it was still for me very much about uh, writing the book I wanted to write and something I wanted to read. Mm. And, and yeah, so giving up was like never, ever on my mind. But aren't you in a way still kind of glad that you did that, did the one you wanted to write? Because you can always be strategic in the future. You know what I mean? Um, But now at least you got out exactly what you wanted to get out. And it's still finding so much success. Well, exactly. I think um, I was sort of lucky that when I finished this book, like it didn't get picked up right away. Mm. Um, I didn't find an agent immediately. Mm. Um, but when when I did about my third submission round, so mm-hmm. just for clarity, like normally when you finish a book, you send off to eight to 10 agents at a time. Mm-hmm. And then you'd maybe wait three months, four months mm. or so mm-hmm. to, to see who gets back. Mm-hmm. So I'd had some interest, but no one had offered to um, represent me. Mm. And then when I did my third submission round, which mm-hmm. was sort of once we had the COVID bounce, because oh. I, I was submitting all during COVID and I'm assuming probably wasn't a great time to submit anyway. Interesting. Mm-hmm. But by the time it was my third submission round, you know, the vaccines were out, um, kind of places were opening up again. We weren't in lockdown anymore. But also kind of suddenly mythology retellings had come huh. into fashion. Huh. Um, like Circe and Song of Achilles were big, but also um, Shelley Parker-Chan had 
written a book called She Who Became the Sun, mm. which was a bestseller and it was historical fantasy. Hmm. And so when I did my third submission round, suddenly loads of people were interested. Hmm. And so I think suddenly maybe people were reading my stuff now and thinking, ah, you know, maybe this is marketable now uh, because people, it is a fact, you know, people want to be able to sell your book and it has to be of course, yeah. Marketable to a degree. Right. right. Um, and so that I think possibly helped me. Uh, but then of course, um, like I don't know, Greek mythology is huge, right? If I mm-hmm. invited all the authors I knew who'd re- written a Greek mythology, but you know, <laughs> my house would be filled of authors. Um, yeah. but not so with Irish mythology. So I think that maybe mm-hmm. helped me in a way because yes. now that I got published and suddenly yeah anyone who's interested in Irish mythology there's only a like a handful of yeah. people really to choose from so yeah that's, that's good <laughs> you were like in the right realm but also differentiated which is really yes. a sweet spot which is yes. yeah which and this is just I think just again this is amazing to note that like you put you you showed so much resilience um and really proved your love for the craft right like you put five years in and you still in the end needed a little bit of luck yes and that is writing I'm afraid Mm -hmm. (laughs) it is very very hard to kind of get a break in in, into writing uh it it is um no doubt about that I have so many friends who are really excellent writers and can really struggle to find an agent um Mm -hmm. and then even if you find an agent it can be really hard to find a publisher Mm -hmm. Uh, and so but then also writing to market sometimes doesn't work either because the market moves mm-hmm. and by it the time shifts you, it takes it so shifts. long and by the time you've done it it's shifted yeah yeah right so it, it's just difficult and that's why kind of I suppose what worked for me was writing something I loved something that yes. I, I had a lot of knowledge in and had like 30 plus years knowledge in because I'd always read Irish um, history non-fiction books and Irish mythology books mm-hmm. So it was something I knew a lot about. And I think that, I well, I hope so anyway, that whenever you read a book by someone who's an expert mm-hmm. in the field that they're writing about, that sometimes that will shine through. Yes, yes. Well, and I think that what you've said is so true is like, imagine if you hadn't written what you loved and then the market had shifted, you know? And it honestly does sound to me like if you had written this and the market had never opened up for it, you would still be happy. Yes. You would not feel like you wasted any one of those hours in the evening. And I just think that's so important and instructive. Um, You would never feel like you had wasted your time. No, never. Amazing. Um, Because for me, I suppose um, writing for me is about enjoyment and I suppose improvements in, Mm. in, in a way, but um, it's I think sometimes when we have hobbies and mm-hmm. um, there's a tendency to kind of be very goal driven mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. there's kind of a maybe... massive push out there you have to yeah. be uh, this is a whole big conversation but you could not be more correct yeah yeah and you know sometimes like can you not just do things sometimes right because you like to do them you know right yeah if you like to go for a run like you know do you have to enter a marathon right right (laughs) (laughs) right 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 and there can be joy in just getting better at something at perfecting something at knowing you're good at something and learning how to do it well um 
And, and, and again, like it wouldn't have worked if you hadn't have done this for the love because you would never have lasted five years if you didn't. Yes. And that is, that is another thing. I think probably anything you do, um, you know, longevity, that's like kind of sticking mm-hmm. to something, um, will reap rewards of some kind. Mm. You know, if you can stick to something, you will get better, but Amen. it's yeah. very hard to stick to something you don't like. Yeah. or you're not really into um and so yeah so I like the love of writing that had always been there and sort of having that opportunity to do it um kind of in tandem worked really well in the end right right amazing okay I this is so wonderful I'm I admire you so much I appreciate what you're saying so much about this process can we talk about the book itself of course, yes. So like you said, um, you had always read and loved Irish history and Irish mythology. Yes. And this book um, does this amazing thing, which combines the two. Um, so the first thing that I want to ask is this, that feels to me, given again, the very short amount of time that I spent in Ireland, like a very natural melding it feels a little bit, it feels ancient there. It feels a little bit mystical, a little bit magical. Do you think that there is something very natural about combining those two, particularly for Irish history and mythology or or no? Was that something very new that no one's ever done before? Of course, both could be true. Um, to me, it felt very natural as mm-hmm. in um, our mythologies, mm-hmm. if they were to be written today, they would be historical fantasies. Mm-hmm. So if you've ever heard of um, a, a mythological character called Cahillan. No. Um, so he's a very famous Irish mythological character. He's a warrior. Okay. Um, and his father was one of the Tua de Danon. Um, ah. he, he wasn't. He's, he's sort of like this very famous warrior. And he has mm-hmm. magical objects, but he himself isn't really overly magical. I see. And so some of our most famous legends are about him and his interactions with the kings and queens of Ireland. But some of the two Dedanon would interact with them. Mm-hmm. So like the Morrigan would kind of come and speak to him and she would have prophecies. And so that is a like a very famous legend that we have. Um, mm-hmm. It's called the Cattle Raid of Cooley would be the mm-hmm. most famous one. And it is a historical fantasy because there are kings and queens that are like kings of Ireland Mm-hmm. Um, of Connacht and of Ulster and then you have these like mythological magical characters who are also in the story mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. so it's something that's already existing um when it comes to the myths Irish myths uh so one of the things that was interesting to me about the book is like it did have a little bit of um well definitely Irish history was mixed not only with English history but also with Nordic history so are the is irish mythology related to nordic mythology is it its own like where did irish mythology spring up from um so we believe it's very very old Mm. um so like predates um like the vikings coming to ireland it's it's like thousands of years before that Mm. so it starts off with um like the mythologies that we would know 
mm-hmm. is with the, the two of Danon and the Fomorians coming to Ireland. And so mm-hmm. this is like thousands of years before Christ. This is mm. very, very old stories and about all the wars that um, went on between the it's- two of Danon. And, and the, so for yeah. people, so a lot of people listening won't have read the book. I I did. So I know about the Tyrdanans and the Fomorians. Can you explain a little bit about, um, well, maybe even tell a little bit about your book, like how, and then just so, because it's too big of a, like, you can't teach us a history or a no. mythology lesson here, but maybe just in the context of your book, tell us about these two groups and, and the, um, the timing of your book and everything. Okay, so um, okay, so in but very quickly in, in, in Irish mythology, so mm-hmm. there's two tribes who came, the Tudadanan and the Fomorians, mm-hmm. and the Tudadanan are friends with the humans that live in Ireland, mm-hmm. and the Fomorians try to enslave them, and they have like fire magic which mm-hmm. they use to to enslave the people. Mm-hmm. So these two tribes traditionally fight with each other, mm-hmm. and so in my story. I have that they are Fomorians left living in Ireland. So there's some people with fire magic mm-hmm. and they are also descendants of the two to Dan and, and they have mm-hmm. a multitude of gifts. Mm-hmm. So some of them are witches, some of them are prophets, mm-hmm. some of them are great healers, some are great warriors. Mm-hmm. And these two tribes um, hate each other. Mm-hmm. But the Fomor- but what, sorry, what the two to Dan and think is that they've actually killed all the Fomorians. Mm-hmm. Um, but they haven't. There are three that are left that have survived. Mm-hmm. And so it's about these three Fomorians trying to work out how to regain their power because they right. used to be like the high kings in Ireland. Right. Uh, and all while doing it in secret and remaining hidden from the two to Danon, who are much greater in number. Right. And have these kind of quite powerful gifts as well. Right. And hidden among the humans as well, yes. because they yeah. appear to be human. Yes, they look human. So, right. um, like if you come to Ireland, like sometimes you will go to to oh, like maybe somewhere like the Giant's Causeway, and mm-hmm. um, like mythological characters can be depicted as giants mm-hmm. in Ireland. But in the old mythologies that you would read, like the original versions, um, there is no reference made to them being giants, mm-hmm. and they marry with the models and have children with them. So, mm-hmm. they, to my mind must appear to look the same. Mm, I see. I see. Okay. Do, do the Irish, did the, did the Irish believe their mythology? Like, so if you, if you go back to ancient Greece, you will find altars to the Greek gods. Like they were worshiping the Greek gods. Um, now we think of myths as a, um, as a fictional, um, you know, a story. Irish, did they, at the time of the telling of these myths, was this a good story? Um, was it folklore or did they believe in and worship these gods, these tribes? You see what I'm asking? Yes. So I think so. I mean, it's mm. um, like things like shrines and stuff like that don't exist um, the same way maybe that they would mm. in Greece. But for example, there is a character called Bridget, who is a goddess of the Tour de Danon. Mm-hmm. And we also have and her, her feast is a uh, is in february mm. so she would have had a feast day and then when the christian church began to dominate ireland um they had a saint called bridget mm-hmm. and her feast day is on the same day as bridget of the two Danans day mm. mm-hmm. so if you kind of look at how the church established itself in other countries quite often they would try to merge saints onto pagan yes. uh festivals yes. and to kind of 
make it easier for people to accept the new religion. Yes, yes. This is true of Christmas and Easter. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so St. Bridget's Day for me, and she's like one of the patron states of Ireland, along with St. Mm-hmm. Patrick. Mm-hmm. And so I think if you look at that, I think they've done the same thing. Um, and people would have worshipped, mm-hmm. say, the Tudor Danon and the other pagan festivals like Lunasa mm-hmm. and um, oh, there's, there's loads of Irish festivals. They're all I suppose pagan in a way and it's not it's not worship as in like they're sacrificing anything mm-hmm. it's more like seasonal changes mm-hmm. and either celebrating or commemorating mm-hmm. I so see. a lot of the festivals the pagan festivals in Ireland are around like equinoxes and like the shortest day of the year and the longest day of the year when crops would have been planted when they would have been reaped you know it's all to do with the land I see um, and so the two to Dan and like there's no like in Greek mythology there is like the god of wine and right. the goddess of fertility and the god of the sea and the sun right. in Irish mythology it's a little bit like that but mm-hmm. not so overtly it's more vague it's a bit more vague so mm. um like Manana McLear would be sort of the two to Dan and god of the sea but mm-hmm it's not like people would have worshipped him if they mm-hmm. had been going out on a, a boat voyage I don't I think I see I see um, I see I think it was more the Tudor Dan were kind of worshipped or thought of as a group um of, of people um yeah and there's no evidence of like yes. I don't know, sacrifice that you would have seen kind of in kind of Greek Norse mythology right okay so these characters in your book you made those up out of your own imagination the the tear Danan and yeah like you have yeah, yeah. I yeah. I can't pronounce their names unfortunately <laughs> any of them but I I could I know them by seeing them you know what I mean but yeah. yeah you have like the leader and then you have the sister and um and and they each have their own gifts like you said you really kind of you impose that structure on the tear Danan and, and the characters Yes. So, so in the, the old mythologies, I said, mm-hmm. um, there are different gifts, like they're, the gifts they have given them mm-hmm. are the gifts that in the mythologies mm-hmm. it was possible to have. I see. Um, so that's true. I guess, and they're all invented characters, but with the Fomorians, I have pretended that real life historical characters um, had this fire magic. Oh, so the Fomorian characters are. Um, yeah, they're the- real people that existed um because like there this is main character this 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 Gorla. queen yes yes she was a real character a real yes. historical figure yes uh. and um yes yeah, so she and so was her brother and her mother and whenever I was researching oh. the period um you know Irish history isn't hugely well documented at this mm-hmm. time mm-hmm. Um, but the monasteries did keep records of like marriages and when kings uh, died and kind of a new king was crowned and at this time you can see the Irish royal families married into each other quite often mm-hmm. yes. and so it's quite significant that Gormla's mother was recorded as I think as the woman from the rocks mm. um, and I've read a, like a whole historical um, kind of document about what this meant and possibly that she wasn't from Ireland, that she was either Norse ah. or a slave. Ah. Um, so was that a little, go ahead. Yeah. So that was like a little, oh, like, so if someone has married into this like royal family as an outsider, then she could be one of these Fomorians that's sort of trying to hide herself. 
and um, from the two to Dannon um, and to kind of keep uh, your secret safe. Just getting inside your process a little bit is so exciting. Like I'm sure there were nights you were just up, like making connections and just thinking it through and just, just, uh, it's just so exciting. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, these, these were my long commutes to Belfast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was spent thinking about like how could I kind of weave um kind of this mythology into the history amazing and make it feel maybe more more Irish um mm. and less of just like a generic uh warriors versus Vikings mm. story mm. and make it you know no I, like this is in Ireland and it's the beliefs of the Irish at the time mm-hmm. and you're kind of getting more layers maybe than just a straightforward historical fiction novel. Oh, absolutely. Yes, that definitely came through. I mean, it was unlike anything, honestly, I had ever read. And it did open up, again, like all these all these questions for me. So to, about Ireland and Irish history and Irish mythology. And um, I like I'm very hungry for more, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I'm excited for book two. Um, so I think way back when we started, I asked you and and then we went off because I took us off. I said, can you tell us a little bit about the book? So I had said, where did this mythologies, where did they spring out of? Were they Norse? And you said, no, like uh, they came thousands. Did you say hundreds or thousands of years before? Uh, we, we think there are thousands of years. Thousands of years. So yeah. who who were the people? Well, I, I guess I want to throw out another group, like, because I always think this is so confusing to me. And again, here in America, when we talk about like these kind of simple ways that we talk about Irish and Ireland, like Celtic always gets thrown in there. It's just like thrown into the mix. And I guess I almost always use the two interchangeably. Um, What, who were the Celts? (laughs) Who were they? And are they, did some of these mythologies come from them more so even than the Norse? Ah, okay. So um, Celtic mythologies for me kind mm. of incorporate Wales, um, Scotland, um, like sometimes Arthurian legend would be described as Celtic. Oh, um, really? Yeah. I think it's just like kind of the, all the islands around here, um, okay. would be described as Celtic, but Irish mythology is distinct as like say with Arthurian legend and like some Scottish legends, you know, they're, they're different. And, I think because Ireland was never conquered by um, Rome, mm. uh, it didn't have, um, I think its mythologies like stayed intact for longer. Okay. Yeah. Um, so these because... predate even, even Roman mythology. Oh yeah. Yeah. Wow. yeah definitely. Um, wow. It's because in some of the mythologies that we have, um, right. Okay, so the, the monks, that uh-huh. kind of began to, to come to Ireland uh, and Irish people then who became monks began mm-hmm. to write our mythologies down mm-hmm. kind of between maybe like the 6th, say to the 13th centuries. A lot that This is where lots of our mythologies have been documented from. Mm-hmm. And during the time, they some of the monks tried to align some of our legends to things that happened in mm. Christianity mm-hmm. um so there's like one story where like one of the kings dies and it's meant to happen at the same moment that Christ dies oh, okay um, so that they sometimes do the monks do things like this they, they sort of try to weave the mythologies into like Christ- Christianity right again to make it more palatable to people or do you think maybe yeah or maybe just it's their own belief system or maybe mm. sometimes I think they're trying to like 
impress Rome and kind of try to make mm. Ireland feel like a very holy place. Mm. Like one mm-hmm. of our sources that we have, which documents all the Tudadan and, and the Fomorians, mm-hmm. before they came to Ireland, um, the first invasion of Ireland that they record is Noah. Mm. Um, so like Noah's Ark landed in Ireland and they kind of try to write a history of how that happened. Wow. Um, so that so monks did that every so often. They would try to inject wow. some sort of Christianity <laughs> element. Wow to the myths um really going way way back amazing oh yeah okay yeah. yeah um but but thankfully I think enough of the the mythologies exist and have been written by different people that you can kind of you know which ones to discard ah. <laughs> um, you can see the column sorry the common elements with uh-huh. the ones that maybe haven't had that right so much. right yeah interesting so, yeah so they're so very really yeah. very 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 ancient yeah Okay. And then even though they were never conquered by Rome, they kind of were like uh, almost like a satellite state maybe. And so they were influenced, but not, but not conquered the way that England, Wales and Scotland were, is that what you're saying? And so England, Wales and Scotland kind of went more the Celtic route, um, which touched Irish mythology, but didn't subsume it. Yeah. So like, well, obviously I know um, like in Scotland, like there would be lots of legends and mythologies there, but like in England, um, like all the older pagan gods, um, you know, you don't hear of them anymore. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. It's like a lot harder to find evidence of them. And I just think because Christianity came to England first Hmm. um, and it was a conquered state by Rome, Mm -hmm. um, you know, there was maybe less interest in recording the older stories right right whereas yeah. because Ireland wasn't conquered you know there was no one there to say oh you know you need to completely like d- delete all past mm-hmm. commentaries of pagan gods in Ireland they wrote down all the stories and it was almost like you're allowed to believe this stuff happened as mm-hmm. long as you believe in Christianity now well whereas, and go ahead yeah. sorry no I was just gonna say and I think in other countries in Europe they weren't given that option Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it was like we need to like kind of completely destroy all thoughts of the older gods Mm. um and you know and kind of you you must now learn like the new religion of Christianity but in Mm -hmm. Ireland that never ever happened there was never really a big attempt to stop Mm. people believing Mm -hmm. in, in the older religion although in your book one of the main conflicts between humans um and and the Fomorians just kind of use this as they'd like to, but the main one of the main conflicts between humans is between this, um, like those who adhere to like the Norse mythology and those who adhere to Christianity. Like there's this amazing scene. It was such an amazing scene where they're arguing about um, if someone is going to Valhalla or heaven. And it was like this just crazy, like the fact that you're talking about it doesn't, something's actually happening after someone's dead. (laughs) The fact that you're talking about it doesn't get to determine it, but the way that we, it was just like this amazing um, scene for me, just the way that we deal psychologically with death. um, And also the two, uh, the two um, belief systems interacting. It was just this amazing scene. So you do set it during a time where there was like great conflict between these belief systems exactly yeah so in Ireland at the time of my book there's also Viking invasions and they mm. they have conquered the port of Dublin 
Mm. So they that's their own land. And then our, the, the Irish kings have the rest of Ireland. Mm. But then also Christianity has come to Ireland, but not really very well. Yeah, yeah, um, you make that clear. <laughs> yeah, so they haven't really converted the Irish in the same way the English have been converted mm-hmm. in that like the Irish have built all these lovely churches and they have priests and have monks, but they haven't really changed their lifestyles in any meaningful way. Mm-hmm. Um, so they are still quite pagan, but sort of kind of slightly converted to Christianity. And then, of course, the Norse are also having their own split. So some of the Norse are beginning to convert to Christianity mm-hmm. and some of the Norse are still pagan with like within the Norse mythologies. Right. Even Ireland is this melting pot of like almost three different ideologies. Yes, yes, yes. It's amazing yeah. you were able to hold all three together in your book. Yeah, but I, I think that's, um, you know, it's, it's a great source of conflict um, mm. to to have. And I think it's also a kind of a good way to show maybe how conversion happened. Like, I mm. think sometimes when people think of conversions, it's almost like an overnight thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and of course, sometimes that is the way of it for some people. But mm-hmm. also, I think for a, a whole society to convert, um, it takes time. And I yes. sort of have to kind of mer- sometimes they merge and sometimes one wins out over the other. And mm. this is that time where things are changing and merging. Yeah. And, you know, that's so interesting you say that because you do like I'm so like I'm Christian. So I'm looking for what did you say? True Christianity, like in in these in these in these characters in this. I'm looking to recognize what I know. You know what I mean? As Christianity. And you have one or two characters who will talk about, you know, the forgiveness and the sacrifice, you know, um, of of someone who follows Christ to like be like him. But then you'll have someone else um, who's like a despicable character and is just using the name of Christ um, to broker these terrible deals for everyone, you know, and, um, that's so, you know, you really did a good job of that, of showing that this was a gradual conversion, um, at times only a name, but at times in spirit as well, just really, really well done. Yeah. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Amazing. How, how do you feel like it all interacts now? Um, Christianity has mainly been Catholicism, right? In mm-hmm. in Ireland. How does all that interact now? Um, well, I suppose I've lived in a time of great upheaval myself. Mm-hmm. Um, like being in the north of Ireland, obviously yes. there was troubles, which yes. is kind of uh Protestant versus Catholic, if just yeah. to distill it down to kind of uh, a simpler version. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also uh, as someone who has been brought up Catholic, you know, the Catholic Church's power in Ireland has really eroded mm-hmm. since mm-hmm. I was a child. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when I was a child, like everybody went to mass. Mm. Um, you didn't miss mass. Um, you know, church was a huge part of your life. And mm-hmm. now that's completely changed. And I think a lot of the scandals in Ireland mm-hmm. um, with the churches is, is a huge uh, part of that mm-hmm. yeah um, the U.S. as well yeah yeah mm-hmm. um like everywhere really you know um and I suppose kind of you, you look back at history and the you know the church was so prominent in the south of Ireland because um whenever uh, to my mind whenever Ireland uh the south of Ireland got independence from England mm-hmm. um there was a huge power vacuum 
and the church was sort of an established power structure within Ireland that kind uh, of suddenly picked up the mantle and I kind see. of the church and states almost worked together mm-hmm. in, in those years post-independence to kind of uh, form a kind of a power base and a, and a structure within mm-hmm. Ireland. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but yeah, but, but I suppose... So whenever I suppose I think of my own upbringing and religious movements and change and change of ideas and how ideas that were really once absolutely believed with certainty mm-hmm. can mm-hmm. erode and change and drift. Mm-hmm. And so I think that is kind of reflected in the story, mm-hmm. even though it's set like, I mean, literally almost to the year, like a thousand years earlier. Mm. It's the same, there's the same conflicts and the same issues over religion and um what it means to people to some people it is like absolutely you know mm-hmm. it's religion and it's faith and it's how to leave your life mm-hmm. how to lead your life into other people it's a power structure and it's yes. be utilized and mm-hmm. to help you control people mm-hmm. um you know and I think that it's sort of I've seen those things in my life mm-hmm. and I kind of recognize that in this period of history mm-hmm. Amazing. Amazing. It, that absolutely comes through. Amazing. Wow. Well, I, I want to be respectful of your time. So I, <laughs> I, we can, I, I mean, I could talk to you forever about the book, about your process, about um, Irish history and mythology. It's all so wonderful to me. So fascinating. Like I said, when I read this, I thought I've just never read anything. Like you said, yeah, maybe there's, um, there's similar stuff going on with Greek and Roman mythology, but we've all kind of heard those before. Like it's a little bit tired and this was so fresh and new and opened up a world of questions for me. So, um, so I could take more of your time, but I won't, I just want to ask how are books two and three coming along and what, when can we, when can we expect those? Okay. So, well, I have finished book two. Amazing. Um, Congratulations. that's, That's now handed in. Um, it is out in the UK and Europe on the 14th of September. Mm. And then it's out in North America on the 3rd of October. Mm. And I think, yeah, and the audiobook should be coming out around then as well, mm. um, which is good. Um, yes, yeah, so that's book two. Mm-hmm. And then book three, I'm nearly finished. So, wow. Yeah, I have until the end of June to hand that in. Wow. Is it getting faster as it goes? Um, what do you mean? Is it what, faster? The writing, writing process? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I'm sort of, I think I'm about a book a year kind of person. Okay. That seems to be my um, level of work. But in yeah. saying that, I only just went full-time writing in January. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Yeah, so, um, I, I'll see. I might speed up now that I have more time. <laughs> and all my kids are now at school as well. Uh. So, um, I have daytime writing time instead of just this hour in the evening. <laughs> right. Amazing. Just amazing. Okay. Well, I want to let you go, but not without saying one more time, how much I enjoyed your book, how much I'm looking forward to two and three and how, you know, there's always something, there's always something I don't expect in every conversation and just the wisdom that I think you gave those of us who are doing something on the side because we love it, or those of us who are thinking about it, or just those of us who want to change something, but don't know what, um, 
I mean, you are full of so much wisdom and inspiration. And um, I think your your resilience and um, enthusiasm are just so admirable and so, so wonderful um, and instructive and inspiring. So I can't thank you enough for this time. I've enjoyed it so much. Oh, well, thank you so much, Becky, for inviting me on and asking me all these questions and <laughs> <laughs> um, reading the book and enjoying the book. That's um, like so lovely to hear as well. Oh, of course, of course. Okay. Tell everyone where to find you and of course, where to find um, the children of gods and fighting men. Okay. So in America, um, I know Barnes and Noble stock mm-hmm. up, uh, Amazon obviously stock yes. up. Um, and so you can get it uh, on hardback and ebook and audiobook at the minute. And then the paperback in America is coming out in August. Um, if you prefer if you prefer the paperbacks um and then everywhere else it's you know and also remember you can order from like any local independent bookstore um even if they don't have it in they'll order it in for you uh, yes. and the same as as your local library yes um yeah so hopefully there's lots of ways to to get the book um yeah like online or in store yeah for sure there are yeah i've been looking up reviews and everything and it's it's everywhere so <laughs> All right, Shauna, thank you so much. I hope you have a wonderful afternoon. I'm going to go make some stew. Oh, perfect. I can't wait to see see your photos. (laughs) Have a great day. Thanks, Becky. Bye. Bye. Thanks again to Shauna for coming on. Thank you for being here. You can find all of Shauna's information and also, of course, a link to her delicious hearty Irish beef stew um, in the show notes. I would love to, while you're there, checking out the show notes, I would love to invite you to subscribe to the Storied Recipe newsletter. This is a very interactive, community-based newsletter. I try to do as much as I can to support listeners and uh, former guests through this newsletter. I have a question of the week. You get to provide a lot of input to me about um, the future of the Storied Recipe, episodes that are coming up, recipes that you'd like to learn more about, And uh, this is also the best way to keep up with um, uh, new recipes and new episodes that are coming out. I'd also love for you to hit subscribe right there in your podcast player right now. And as always, I am so grateful for every five-star review. Um, It really helps a lot as I seek to grow the podcast. Once again, thank you to Shauna for being here. Thank you, listener, for tuning in. Would love to hear your thoughts on this episode. Um, That's it. Have a great week, my friends.